The second panel is titled New Forms and Movements. This panel will examine politics as it is shaped and negotiated by citizens and members of civil society in Singapore. It will also discuss movements that impact Singapore's politics. The chairperson of this panel is Professor Farish Ahmad Noor from the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies, Nanyang Technological University. He will open the panel discussion and introduce the speakers. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, thank you for joining us for this, uh, what I think will be a very interesting and very exciting forum on new forms and movements in society. Um, of course, um, in this day and age, many of us are familiar with uh, themes that have been in circulation in the media for decades now. We talk about the age of disruption, there's been a lot of talk about the possible end of the nation state, about how globalization has uh, created all kinds of new communicative infrastructures, bringing about new social movements. But despite all this um, talk that has actually gone on from the 80s to 90s, the nation state is still the dominant actor in, in international relations, and we see that the nation state has not lost its relevance or its saliency in politics, both domestically and, and internationally. However, we cannot deny the fact that in practically every society in the world today, we are looking at social landscapes and political landscapes that are very, very different. And one major reason for this is the prominence of new actors uh, on the landscape, on the stage of national politics. Um, this promises to be a very interesting session because we are looking at uh, precisely these sort of groups that are emerging in Singapore today, uh, symptomatic of what's happening worldwide. Um, in brief, I will introduce uh, the speakers uh, in order. We will begin with uh, Dr. Crystal Abedin, Senior Research Fellow um, in the Faculty of Humanities, Curtin University. After that, I'll invite Mr. Chai Ying-Siu, uh, Director of Citizen Adventures. Um, after that, it will be Ms. Kerry Tan, Executive Director of Daughters of Tomorrow. And finally, Ms. Noor Lastrina Hamid, Co-Founder of Singapore Youth for Climate Action. Um, the themes uh, of their own work, as you can tell, are very pertinent to the needs and concerns of the age that we live in. So without further ado, I would like to invite Dr. Crystal to take the floor. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for having me and my panelists here. Um, without further ado, let me begin. I am a Senior Research Fellow of Internet Studies, and I'm an anthropologist by training. What this means is I spend a lot of time looking at what young people, especially in Singapore, but also in the Asia Pacific, do on the internet. And by this, I don't mean I just sit behind a computer and look at them online. I also spend extensive periods with these young peoples in different domains, where they live, where they work, in order to find out what they do online, what this means for them. So a snapshot of some of the research that I do is now on screen. It comprises anything in the Singapore context from influencers, internet celebrities, meme cultures, viral videos, so on and so forth. And I do see a lot of people, especially in the back here, who are wearing dresses made by online fashion shops in Singapore, who once upon a time in the mid-2000s were known as block shops. And that can probably tell you my age. Um, but when I get into that section later on, I hope also to highlight a few things about social media and network cultures in Singapore in today's climate. But first off, as all good academics do, a bit of context. 
The Singapore context is a little bit different than the rest of Southeast Asia for different reasons. First, we have to consider the structure. We have a normative state surveillance culture in which we believe that if the state is watching us through those scary spiderweb cameras on the MRT um, or along the street at night, we believe in the faith and the good nature that this is for our protection and for our well-being. There is also a very high level of tested IT knowledge among our citizens. You're looking at kindergartners, kids in primary school, already learning how to use tech, um, IT and tech. And it's systematic all throughout um, all the levels of society. Moving on to culture, we do have also a situation of media didacticism. What this means is, is if you turn on a Jack Neal movie, a Channel 8 TV series at prime time, chances are every single episode or movie is going to be delivering some sort of moral message on how to be a better Singaporean or a better person in life. But in tandem with this, we also have the culture of public shaming that is as a result of an institution known as Stomp. Now, for a long time, Stomp has been a cornerstone of internet culture in Singapore, where everyday ordinary citizens like you get to upload or put online anything that you feel is pertinent for your concerns. This can be an irate driver on the streets, down to supposedly an NS man in uniform who is not allowed to be taking a seat in an empty train cabin because you're meant to be vigilant and protecting your country at all times. Now, we also now have the third pillar looking at agency. Singapore is a relatively small country in terms of land size, but we are very dense. This lends us to this idea or this feeling of anomie, where it's easy to feel invisible, nameless and faceless in the crowd. But at the same time, the combination of lateral surveillance from public cameras, the idea that anytime any citizen can come and stomp you, also makes you feel that while being faceless and nameless, you might be watched. What I do in this context is to look at how internet pop culture relates to the idea of everyday politics. And today I want to surface three types of research that I do and the impact that has on Singapore society. First off, let's look at two examples of influencer culture in Singapore. Now, influencers in the most part in Singapore tend to be degraded. They tend to be spoken of not very kindly in today's age. They seem to be people who are attention seekers just out here to grab your attention online and then sell you something via a hashtag sponsored post. But if you were to go back to the very early beginnings and history of influencer cultures in Singapore from 2005, a lot of this originated from grassroots groups, young people on the fringes, minority race, sexuality, gendered groups who had messages that they wanted to put out to young people in society. My favorite example are a YouTube Malay and Arab duo known as Munahirzi Official. Now, some of you may remember that across all their parody videos, this specific one from 2016 stood out. What happened was a Malay woman had submitted an application form in order to put an exhibition um, in, a, in a mall in the east side of Singapore. And her application was denied because the mall, quote unquote, was trying to cater to a Chinese audience. And this Malay woman did not want to take this um, feedback um, without a fight. That story came out in a string of news articles, but it was very quickly buried. What happened is that influencers like Muna Harazi official took that incident as their inspiration, produced parody videos in order to reverse this situation. This video, which I highly recommend, shows them in a Malay-predominant light club 
um, declining the application form of a Chinese alien wanting to hold a birthday party in a club because they do not serve the majority race in that situation. Now, if you were a woke Singaporean, as young people say these days, you would understand exactly this context. It was parody meant to push forth messages of anti-racism. But if, say, you were just a regular Beyonce, Nicki Minaj, Ariana Grande fan, and you know of these vehicles, you know of these pop songs that go viral nationally and internationally, this may come across to you as just another local parody. The implication of the political message may be lost on you, but you still get a semblance that parody is a strong vehicle for people in the margins and in the fringes to share messages in a mainstream and comfortable way. A more recent case in point here would be from the Naya siblings, musician Subhas and influencer Pretty, who produced a parody video in order to push forth more anti-racism messages that they saw in a, a brown face incident that occurred in our country. A second incident. We also want to look at influencers who are pushing off messages to do with gender and sexuality. Again, my favorite example is Munah Herzi official showing trans people, intersex people, people who are fluid on the gender spectrum, unapologetically occupying space in public as forms of pop culture and the contents that they produce. But we also have more of the traditional old school influencers and bloggers, as we used to call them, from 2005, who used to put up provocative content at first to shock and scare people, but eventually to deliver a hashtag sponsored message once again. Case in point, this was lifestyle blogger Holly Jean, who for a period of two weeks went very silent on the internet after a supposed viral video of her engaging in an intimate act went out. Uh, shortly after that, in the two weeks that had passed, she eventually released an extended video showing that this was all part of a campaign from Durex to teach young people that even in a moment of heat, in a moment of passions, there's always time to put on a condom. So we're seeing now influencers using very creative ways in order to push forth issues that are difficult to talk about in mainstream society, or perhaps in formats that are more palatable and interesting to the young people they have to reach. The second vein that we want to look at now is the idea of meme factories. Now, meme factories generally contribute to normalization of ideas. They make permissible what people may feel afraid of making dominant conversation, but they also allow young people to have a vocabulary for talking about things that may be contentious. Back in about 2005, our member of Hamelin, Mr. Bayam King, posted a tribute in the wake of the Paris attacks. Now, he had a very sincere caption, followed by a picture of himself last taken at the Eiffel Tower. On his exact same Facebook page, though, young citizens, or as we call them in Singapore, young netizens, took to memeing him and photoshopping him next to all different types of monuments in order to prove their point, that they felt perhaps the format was not palatable, or that this meme caricature, or the idea of meme cultures, needed a bit more sophistication and dedication before politicians were to adopt that vocabulary of young people vernacular. So here you see instantaneously a very great way to get feedback on the ground live as things unfolded. We also these days have different types of meme factories perpetuating on Instagram. Two of my favorites are Kiasu Meme for Singaporean Teens and Hainan Chicken, which is a comic style webtoon series of images in the style of the New Yorker um, newspaper cartoons. Now, both of these memes were in reference to a series of sexual assault cases that came to light from the National University of Singapore in 2019. 
At first, this issue came to the surface because an undergraduate, Monica Bay, took to Instagram to share experiences before it got widely taken up by other influencers, other prominent young people who use social media, and indeed other people who run meme factories in order to normalize conversation. It is not that they were trying to normalize the act, but they were equipping young people with vocabulary, whether through humor, through parody, through critique, through the language of social justice, to talk about these issues. And these two were my personal favorites. Now, the last threat we want to look at is the idea of network threats or viral videos, groups that may coalesce and congregate online and online pages, groups or forums. When I first mentioned the issue of the Pretty Please and Subhas Naya influencer video parodying the ePay ad, that incident was first made to light by editor-in-chief of Minor Magazine, Ruby Tiagajaran, in a Twitter thread. Likewise, Monica Bay, who instituted um, a whole national conversation about sexual harassment and hashtag MeToo, sparked that off on a series of Instagram posts. But pre-social media taken up by these very young millennials and Gen Zs, we had the good old SMRT limited feedback. For those of us who still use Facebook, who are probably not millennials, and those of us who still remember what SMRT Feedback Limited used to do, they were a network group of people who were very involved in tech, who were sometimes called online trolls, who were sometimes called a meme group. At the height of their activity, a lot of people were submitting to them what they felt were injustices done to citizens. Case in point, a tourist who had been scammed and conned by people um, who operated mobile phone services in Simlim Square, who despite going viral on social media, did not yet receive proper legal or police redress for their complaints. So SMRT Feedback Limited, with a group of other very um, enthusiastic citizens, came together to name and shame some of the people who ran these scams, but they also came together to organize relief efforts, fundraising efforts, in order to help chase down these errant um, shopkeepers and to help their victims. Now, as much as this is very optimistic and it feels really good to tell you about all the wonderful things that very young people are doing on the internet, there are also some fallbacks. If we were to look at influencers who primarily serve as your amplification platforms, it's great that they're giving us a vocabulary and a sense of urgency to talk about race, gender, sexuality, and the like. But we must also remember that these tend to be minority influencers, influencers from civil society, who sometimes may not always prioritize their rice bowl. If we were to look at some of the most popular YouTube channels or networks in Singapore that are run by Chinese youth, you often see that they use minority um, or fringe identities as a punchline. You have someone who dresses up very effeminately, who, has been, um, use, who uses derogatory terms in their skits. You may have people who caricature minority races in their skit in order to imbue the sense that you're meant to be afraid of these characters. And these things go under the radar. We don't discuss them, we don't call them out to the same extent as we did many other incidents, because they feel normal, they feel common, and they have been normalized by everyday society. Meme factories in the same way who have been helping us with a conversation about normalizing the things that we find difficult to talk about also have their fallbacks. Now, early on, Zoraida mentioned um, the idea of internet brigade. 
the fact that sometimes when we see all these consolidated and network posts online, on Facebook, many of them are actually very artfully architectured by groups of people who push out the same message at the same time under the guise that this is the grassroots wanting to show you something or prove a point. We now know and research all throughout Southeast Asia that these are architects of misinformation, disinformation, attention hacking. We also now know that they're for hire, whether for the state, pro-state, anti-state, or even just to sponsor, um, to elevate sponsored products for all sorts of corporate clients. So as we celebrate meme factories and the joy they give us on the internet from the humor, you also want to think about the sources, the agenda, and who is channeling all of this information to us. Lastly, with network threats. Well, they do a very good job in surfacing issues that we would normally let fly under the radar or not care about. We also want to be aware of mob mentality. I work and live in Perth in Western Australia, where in the last four to five years, many people who have been named and shamed by Stomp and by wider internet culture in Singapore have fleed to Perth. They have gone there to seek refuge because they feel that out here in the streets, they are found by Singaporeans and even being called out in person. This is something we have to address, and it's something that reminds us of the power, the transferability, and the bleeding capacity of internet culture into concrete everyday life. At the same time, we don't want to always um, discard these efforts as just millennials doing a woke thing online or Gen Z people wanting to be very politically correct. Because the last thing we want is for our young people to have call-out fatigue, to have um, feelings that they're no longer able to participate in society because nobody listens to them. I want to end with just two quick points here. What should we make of everyday politics and internet pop culture? The first is, do not belittle the format. As much as it comes across as funny, frivolous, and humor, it is relatable and it reaches audiences that you can never imagine. And finally, don't underestimate the authority of where these sources come from. They may not seem like the most learned, most certified people, but the networks of their power and their information are extremely dispersed, and when they consolidate, that's where you really see the subversive power of them all. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, now I'd like to invite uh, Chai Ying Shu. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Chai Ying Zhou, and I'd like to thank IPS for the opportunity to speak at this event alongside such stellar allies in the space of social advocacy. To be selected from the huge pool of existing thought leaders on different causes and representations is indeed an honour which I hope to do justice in the next few minutes. So most of my work is geographically specific to two neighbourhoods, Geelong and Dakota Crescent. These two are the examples that I'll give today. Geelong being the place that I've grown up all my life, and Dakota Crescent, an adjacent neighbourhood where my grandma had lived at. And I spent most of my time growing up there. So I've named the talk Lorongs of Wisdom in light of some of what I'm about to share. My journey to advocacy was first attributed to the close association of my identity with the stereotypes of the neighborhood I was born into. The key concerns people have are, as you can see on the Google results here. So most people know Geelong for different reasons. Uh, however, growing up, having to debunk such perspectives about a place I called home constantly uh, was quite unnerving, least to say. But from the state's perspective, there was also some truth contained in this stereotype. Crime rates and vice was extremely high, the police commissioner also once described it as a keg of gunpowder ready to explode. 
However, in order to understand the context of vice activities solidifying in Geelang, we have to trace the historical pathways of these activities as well. So it all started in 1819, uh, when Singapore was established as a free trading port. Unfortunately, because the government did not tax trade, they had to look for other revenue means. And one of these means was through implementing of taxation and licenses to vices that were already happening here anyway. So in 1820, you could open a gambling farm for as cheap as $95 per month. And in 1830s, the opium regulation allowed the sale of opium and all the other vices like tobacco and alcohol were other highly taxable vices. In 1860s, there was a huge uh, influx of migrants, mostly young unmarried males. It tipped the gender imbalance to 14 males to one female. In order to maintain social order, prostitution was then legalized, and sex work by mostly foreign women tolerated in designated brothels. All these didn't happen in Geelong yet. It was still at the Singapore River. So after self-governance in 1959, there was much eradication of organized crime groups, many of them who were organizing these vices. Land Acquisition Act in 1967 resettled much of these areas, uh, moving them to the city fringes and beyond. So just a fun historical fact, for some of you who may not know, in 1970s, uh, there was junk ships that were anchored off Changi Point, Pulau Bin, and Pasir Panjang. And for the going rate of $5, you could be taken on board with sampans for a whole day at sea, inclusive of food and a girl thrown in. So this was the historical context of the multiple clampdowns and eventual designation of these activities in Geelang as a red light district and consolidating the vices there. So some people often ask me, why doesn't the government shut everything down? But a similar question in Parliament in 1999 led the Minister of Home Affairs then to explain that it is better to know where they are rather than to disperse them and send them underground. So the policy of containment and control was indeed a pragmatic approach in dealing with these vices and prostitution. As such, Geelong's reputation is often referred to as an urban, urban planning decision and also an allocation as a sacrificial lamb for the rest of Singapore to be safe. So what did it mean then for, uh, for me growing up there in ground zero of this containment zone? So this is a picture of um, uh, growing up in Geelang in 2014. Uh, it was an example of the first-hand encounters of the constant tension between the state and these vices. Uh, eventually, my lived experiences encompassed many of such encounters. So one of the other encounters was with a population of people, many of them who lived in Geelang and I'm referring to the low-wage migrant workers. So statistically, they're about one-fifth of our population. Uh, many of them that live in Geelang are males. They are mostly the construction workers. Uh, and many of them do the jobs that we wouldn't aspire career in. Uh, they do the, the jobs like cleaning, construction, and marine, and we're completely uh, quite dependent on them to fill these areas. So although they are purpose-built dormitories, but many of them who live in places like Geelang and Little India uh, are attracted to the places by cheap rent, and they normally live in the dilapidating shop houses and old apartments. So many of these, uh, unfortunately, also have found to be living in quite squalid conditions. And that was how I met uh, the first group of friends in Geelang from Bangladesh. So they were all young men, and we gathered uh, to play badminton on weekend evenings. And uh, many of them shared with me what they've given up to come here. And I was very inspired as a very young uh, youth back then 
uh, although we were similar ages, the sacrifices they made were completely quite different from the decisions that I have to make in uh, Singapore. And also being able to interact with them on a, a level of friendship really changed the paradigm of the labels that I knew them for as migrant workers. So often I was told, uh, even by my parents, that migrant workers were dangerous. Uh, but one such uh, personal encounter changed that altogether. So this is Basha, he's from Bangladesh. He came to Singapore with his twin brother when they were just 22, uh, and they actually left medical school back home to study here, uh, to work here, I mean. So they had to leave school because their father had a stroke. And in order to feed uh, their family, uh, Basha and his twin brother left their medical school to, study, to work in Singapore as an electrical worker. So Basha, at the point of time, didn't cut his hair for six months. And being a friend, uh, the least I could do was uh, learn how to cut hair on YouTube and give him a haircut. No, I'm kidding. You can actually uh, just pay for a haircut, but uh, I chose to do that because that's what friends do. Uh, both of us were quite poor then. So Basha was actually the first of many migrant workers that I eventually cut hair for. And the sole purpose wasn't really for uh, giving them charity or taking pity on them, but it was really because of how insightful the conversations that I had were. And from many of them, I learned about the stories of their sacrifices and what they did just to come to Singapore to work uh, and in turn giving the prime years of their lives to us. So what are some possibilities of solutions within these communities if we dare to imagine? It is really to talk to these populations instead of just talking about these people. And that's where we started to uh, organize events and activities in the back alleys, in the dormitories, to invite Singaporeans to have their perceptions change through their interactions over food and activities. One of the very memorable uh, participants of these events also t told us that um, they wanted to view Geylang and to understand as well how the place worked. And for us, it was also an opportunity to rethink of that area as a social ecosystem with different groups of people interdependent on one another, uh, speaking beyond the labels of vice that we know of, to one that is alive, that is interdependent on not just one another in Geylang, but with the rest of us in Singapore. And we started to do tours in Geylang. So I transferred this similar methodology in Dakota Crescent in 2015, uh, when the announcement of Dakota Crescent as expiry date uh, was made in 2014. Uh, it was actually a neighborhood that my grandma grew up uh, and lived at, uh, towards her last few years, and so I was extremely quite uh, close to her as well as the neighborhood. So in our interaction with the residents there, I realized that many of them had their own stories to tell, but they didn't really have much of a platform, being from mostly low-income rental flats. Uh, many of them didn't really have uh, empowerment platforms to speak, or maybe because of lack of bandwidth, they cannot operate or gather together. So I organized a group of them, and as a tour guide with a tour guide license, uh, we worked together to create a tour that we could bring Singaporeans to. Except it was quite different, not so much talking about the built architecture or nostalgic merits of the place that it was mostly publicized for in SG50, but really about the people and the place, the connection that they had. Many of you in the room who would probably have lived through that time period of resettlement and relocation as well. Many of them, uh, the residents, took on the role of tour guides, not just showing around their neighborhood, but also showing uh, many of the Singaporeans who came how life was like for them as a community. This led to us eventually not just conducting tours, writing a documentation uh, project online on Between Two Homes.sg, as well as a conservation report uh, documenting the merits of the place from the people's perspective. 
Eventually, this led to a partial conservation of the blocks. However, with the residents moving, the reality of relocation was still a problem. Many of such issues that they faced uh, was also met with spontaneous solutions that were led by the needs that the residents have. So with friends and family, we rallied to around together to help the residents move to the new estate, rebuilding the relationships that they had lost with their neighbours and also connecting them in a very urban HDB setting that was different from the quaint uh, spread out design that the Dakota Crescent SIT flats had. So for years, rental flat communities have been designed and built in their own silos and I'm glad to see efforts of reversing all these through social mixing. What exactly do we do at Citizen Adventures? So what we really want to do is to build uh, bridges and not walls and also look at how we as citizens can find the good in everybody to love our neighbours and to design systemic and resist the systemic level labels placed on these populations through friendships and new norms. So the rental flat uh, design is also similar in terms of how we design recreation centres and migrant worker dormitories. Uh, these have been called uh, social ghettos. Um, and as I said, I'm glad to see it being reversed through new designs of blocks which are mixed of rental and purchase, but also even in schools where we are uh, encouraging mixing of uh, students from different ranges of primary school. So back to the point on social norms. Uh, the question is always what kind of norms do we want to create as citizens? And with people who care, how do we get people to also uh, know about these norms and allow these new norms to sit well within our population? And it first has to start from ourselves. So we need new role models who exemplify the values that we want to see in our society from a three-year-old child to MPs of different constituencies who value efforts of those who keep our estates clean, whether local or foreigners, or to the ordinary Singaporeans who open up their hearts by opening up their homes. We look to these social issues not just as issues in their own silo, but as mirrors which reflect the values of our society. Clans and associations um, is the last point that I'd like to make. Immigrants, uh, many of them who came in early Singapore, formed these uh, organisations as mutual self-help groups to support one another as migrants in a faraway land. Not just focusing on developing their own villages back home, but also eventually contributing to much of public infrastructure by building our first schools, hospitals in Singapore. And although many of the low-age migrant workers back then were doing hard labour, there was a dignity in the process of gathering and seeing a sliver of home as they found community here, just like any human would need. And this is one of the dreams that we have uh, for this group of migrant workers that we hang out with now. So they're called Singapore Migrant Friends. Every Sunday, they play volleyball at Kalang Few. Uh, and they're one of many self-organized migrant groups. SMF is consisting of four different nationalities, excluding Singaporeans as well, who gather every week to hang out with them, have food, and play volleyball. Apart from engaging migrant workers as statistics that we see in our midst, we could also see them as people. Uh, this was in National Day Parade uh, last, last year, uh, where the story of how cutting hair for Basha eventually led to back alley barbers was featured in the parade. It was heartening to see many Singaporeans rallying around the need to care for people around us in our midst as well. I even went to Bangladesh to visit uh, Basha and his house when he got married and got a haircut from his barber as well. 
So Back Alley Barbers has grown to a team of 42 barbers. Uh, we, we are all skilled-based, long-term volunteers that go around giving free haircuts in shelters, nursing home, rental flat communities. We're also building an employ employability program to, uh, to recruit and employ people with special needs, as well as in the future to start our own barber shop. And all these are really identifying these issues as not issues, but social ecosystems. So the dream is really to move beyond the economic but social and environmental perceptions that we have. And also to find the non-Googleables in our neighborhoods uh, through the conversations that we've had, whether amongst our friends in schools or workplaces, to see communities as social ecosystems independent, interdependent on one another. And starting from humanizing the narrative, to find strength in diversity, and perhaps beyond the labels that we put on one another, to talk to one another, and let's stop talking about one another. Thank you. Thank you very much, Inchao. Um, I think um, looking at the last um, two presentations, we can see a common theme of identities and dialogue uh, um, uh, emerging here. And I think that partly addresses a question that was raised in the previous panel about whether society can be different and united at the same time. We'll get to this uh, at the end of this uh, of all four presentations, but before that, I'd like to invite uh, Kerry Tan of Daughters of Tomorrow. Hi, good afternoon. Um, first of all, I'd really like to extend very sincere thanks to IPS for having myself, as well as my peers in the civil society space, to share about our work, precisely because um, this platform is so invaluable for those of us who are seeking to inform and potentially influence policy through the work we do uh, on the ground with communities. So I'd like to allude to a comment by Dr. Lam, who talked to us about whether there's a possibility that politics in Singapore would shift from a politics of survival to politics of aspiration. And personally, I would like to think that, you know, I'm very heartened that this is the beginning of having us on this panel precisely is about politics in aspiration put into action. So I don't presume that many of you in the room would know about Daughters of Tomorrow's work, so I would like to share a little bit. Um, we don't have the time to go into the breadth and the depth of everything that we do, but I hope that with this uh, overview and summary, you can get rid of context of how our work actually is, well, kind of political in a way, but also not really. So to give uh, a brief background about the women that we work with, uh, these are the demographics. Um, they belong to the bottom 10% socioeconomic class in Singapore, of whom 80% of them have secondary school or lower education. 40% of them are single mothers, 80% are from ethnic minority groups, and about a fifth of them are migrant mothers on long-term visit pass. So they range from having two to nine children, and the span of their age that comes through our doors um, range from 20 to their 50s and 60s. And um, well, they all fall below the uh, $650 per capita income per month um, that qualifies them for the Comcare financial assistance. So um, I'd like to take a moment to invite the audience, uh, meaning you, to try and imagine or, or think about in your minds when you look at these statistics, what is your impression of this group of women? I think in the dominant narrative today, we have um, usually seen the um, women described as being people in need or needy, disadvantaged or vulnerable, 
And on the most positive end of that scale, uh, we see them as very resilient amidst their struggles. And I'd like to, hold, uh, to invite you to hold on to these impressions as I continue with my presentation. So, to go back, um, in 2014, when I first seeded the idea and wanted to found this organization, I actually approached a specialist agency that was, um, whose mission was to help returning mothers and mothers to return to the workforce. And the conversation with them was um, kind of enlightening, but also quite disappointing and frustrating at the time. Um, I spoke to them about whether they were helping this bottom, the women at the bottom of the pyramid. And um, their response to me was that they found it very difficult to help them and to express this belief that I actually tried to or attempt to work with this group whom they saw as very difficult and challenging to work with and they don't seem like they wanted to help themselves. So I made the conclusion at that point in time that somehow this community of women were dismissed or perhaps reluctantly relegated to unhelpable or less politically correct term, cannot make it. So over the next six years, uh, I set up DOT and we went about um, discovering many things about the women. And uh, in, since 2015, we have rendered support to more than 1,000 women from the low-income community. And since 2018, we've managed to put 140 of them back into the workforce. Um, this may not look like a statistically very impressive number, but um, I think in view of the barriers that they are facing or they have faced, um, it is quite a promising number. Some of the lessons that I learned when working in this community was um, very shocking for me and also very helpful in helping us to formulate our programs. I learned that poverty was actually an issue beyond just finances and that it depletes people in many ways beyond that. The first thing I realized as to why women were not coming to programs by various workforce agencies was that they didn't even have enough money to pay for bus fare. The other thing was um, they, wanted, they could have wanted to come out for workshops, but um, looking at the stats of how many children they have and the fact that half of them are single mothers, they really lack the family support or other kinds of childcare support to allow them to actually attend any kind of skills upgrading or um, employability kind of programs. So we also noticed that amongst the women that we serve, at least 25% or 27% of them suffer from some form of mental health um, problems, including anxiety, depression, and uniformly all of them suffered from very low self-confidence and self-esteem. So what we set out to do as a community, we started off with uh, my team being a charity, and then we extended our partnerships with a lot of private companies who do CSR with us, um, is that we formulated a, a, a process or a journey to help improve the women's confidence while providing them with moral support and emotional support through volunteer befrienders. We also went um, all the way through soft skills training to skills training or bridging them with vocational training to even um, bridging them with employers whom we sensitize to the challenges of those who work with or live with very scarce financial resources. So the extra mile that we went to in terms of helping this unhelpable community went to the extent of providing for every single workshop that we run until today, uh, childminding provisions, which means that we will have the women attend class in one room and we have a separate room for them to bring their kids and we have volunteers roped in from various sources to help uh, mind the children while the mothers learn in peace. So this is um, the area of, of work that we do on a programmatic level. 
but um, we're also very proud to share that uh, we have in some ways contributed to certain key uh, advocacy wins, um, such as the one on um, the single, on, on the debarment rule for housing for single parents. Um, we actually worked very closely with AWARE and uh, MP Louis Ng on this issue of whether um, single mothers or single parents could buy housing when we realised that uh, a lot of housing instability contributed to the women's um, stresses and uh, they weren't able to, to you know, settle down and be able to commit to a job when they were fearing you know, housing stability. The other advocacy um, win that we had uh, recently was um, when uh, MSF announced that the childcare subsidies, which used to be only catered for women in employment, was now extended to women who were looking for employment. Um, although we never got like, a very definite uh, acknowledgement that it was us who pushed for and succeeded in this advocacy, I think um, we spent a good part of 2014 to 2016-17 um, talking to anybody who would listen to us, whether they were social workers or social service agencies um, or social service officers or anybody we met from MSF about how our women um, were not able to come to class, etc., because they didn't have childcare provisions. So we're quite happy that this kind of... Um, uh, well, subtle complaining or highlighting issues to policymakers actually helped um, in enhancing some policies. So, in the private sector as well, um, we saw that um, it was a very strange gap between the need for workforce. I mean, we ident identified that a lot of the sectors in Singapore, like the F&B sector, the retail and hospitality sectors, um, were always looking to hire locals but they didn't seem to be getting much headway hiring locals. And yet, we had, on the other hand, a pool of potentially 25,000 local women looking for employment. Um, after you know, really working alongside employers and the women for several years, uh, we correctly diagnosed that the main barrier was that um, these sectors traditionally structured their work in a in kind of shift work or rostering schedules, which means that if an employee um, would potentially be rotated up to three different shifts in a week. And for a single mother who, has, uh, who is not able to afford a domestic helper uh, and only relied on the standard 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. childcare, there is no way they could have been able to take up positions in these jobs, which sometimes required them to work night shifts. So we set about um, advocating for what we call call and stable scheduling to private sector employers and explain to them that you know, these women wanted work, they're willing to work hard, but the only thing that they needed accommodation with is if they could be given office hours for non-office jobs so that they can be enabled to go pick up their kids from childcare by 7 p.m. So since we started this advocacy in, 20, in around September 2018, um, the first three months yielded like 30 companies coming on board to offer coin and stable scheduling. And I'm very happy to share an updated figure that by December last year, uh, that total number of companies pledged and offering call and stable schedules to women in the workplace is now 96 companies across many different sectors that previously the women were not able to access. So this is a picture of Dalina. Um, Dalina is an example of a success story. She was offered call and stable scheduling with a local employer, the Coconut Club. Um, and um, it was to help her juggle with caregiving needs for her elderly mother. This is a picture of Nolia. Um, we also pioneered um, the, the foray, I mean, for low-income women, local women, to take up positions um, as healthcare assistants 
in the elderly homes, the nursing homes, as well as daycare centres, which was a sector that had high demand, continues to have high demand for labour, but is uh, right now still very much highly dependent on the foreign workforce. I'm quite happy to share that uh, there has been many success cases of local women uh, entering these elder care sectors in the past two years. Uh, even now, Nolia has um, kind of uh, been promoted recently and uh, she is mentoring other uh, dot women um, who have entered the same uh, employ or institution that she has, which is uh, the Vanguard Healthcare's Pursue Nursing Home. Um, coming back to the impression of these um, women that you had earlier in, at the beginning of the presentation, um, whether they are needy and vulnerable and disadvantaged, and I'd like to share about Zarina, who is one of our beneficiaries, as well as a community leader in our Women in Action Community Childcare Network. Um, this is a picture of Zarina just in October, a few months ago, um, sharing her community leadership experience with 70 social workers at NUS. Um, and this was facilitated, of course, by one of our colleagues, um, herself, who was an ex-social worker who has joined our team. Um, and I think we were very heartened by the fact that Zarina was able to bring her perspective into a room of students who were aspiring uh, or currently working as social workers to share um, about her experiences and her role in the community as a facilitator for uh, women who needed childminding services and those who were able to provide childminding services from their homes. This is another picture of um, two of our women, um, Siti and Rosie, at uh, the Asian Venture Philanthropy uh, Networks Conference in June last year. Um, they were basically sharing about their community organizing experience um, with global, with impact investors from a glo global community. Um, and I think personally, you know, I'm just really proud that we are able to put the women's voices uh, on, you know, big platforms. Um, we have gone beyond just uh, representing them to talk about them, such as what I'm doing um, today. Um, to even have them, what I would like to think of, being at the table for important discussions pertaining to investments and funding for the work that they do and we do with them at the community level. So if there is one um, last or one cost-related advocacy I'd like to bring today, which is really not the point, <laughs> we're talking about politics, um, but I still, you know, being the, the social activist that I am, would like to encourage everyone um, to be inspired by the stories of the successes of these women that I've shared in the past 15 minutes, um, that truly the women's potential are limited only by society's perception of them, right? And I think um, as a community and as policymakers, I hope that, you know, we can encourage us to think about um, the low-income community as not just needy or deserving only of financial aid, but they truly deserve our financial investment to help them fulfill all their potential and to help them with social mobility. So that's the end of my presentation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kerry. Um, I think Kerry's presentation and Ying Xiao's both have touched on um, this question of identity and recognizing difference and identities within society. But of course, society as a whole is also faced by other concerns that are much, much bigger, not least of which is climate change. And to that end, I'd like to invite uh, Nora Lastrina, who will be speaking about uh, the work of the Singapore Youth for Climate Action. A very good afternoon to everyone. First and foremost, thank you to the Institute of Policy Studies for giving me this platform to be part of the panel uh, on new forms and movement um, to talk about what's happening in the environment space, specifically in the climate sector. 
Like many of you here, I've learned a lot from my fellow panelists, from what they've been doing in their various organizations, in hats and roles, in how they're trying to facilitate conversations, trying to influence society, and also to effect changes that are necessary to bring us to a better Singapore tomorrow. For the next 15 minutes, I would like to put on my hat as an active volunteer in the environment space here in Singapore and share with you some of my learnings and observations that I've made along the years. So I'm not just going to talk about my organization, Singapore Youth for Climate Action. I'm also going to give you a very big picture view of what's going on in the climate scene here and share with you some examples of what the other groups are doing as well. So as you can see here on screen, I've divided my presentation into three parts. Part one, uh, three observations on the evolution of climate movement in Singapore. Part two, two examples of how social media is amplifying the climate movement in Singapore. And part three, ignorance, criticism, and working together. So here we go for part one. So as you can see for part one, I've divided my timeline into three phases. Uh, first, 2010 to 2015, and then 2016 to 2018, and the last one, 2019 to 2020. Um, before I start proper, I think it would be uh, very fair you know, to acknowledge that the environment scene in Singapore has already been active way before the year 2000, with organizations like Nature Society Singapore and Singapore Environment Council doing significant work for nature protection and nature conservation here in Singapore. So for this specific sector on the climate scene here, I think, in my opinion, it really sparked off in 2010. So to give you a bit of context, uh, what was happening globally was that in the US, headed by this organization called 350.org, uh, headquartered in the US, um, they sort of mobilized thousands of people globally in more than 180 countries, asking people to join this climate movement to challenge the systems that created this climate crisis. So that happened uh, in 27, and by 2010, it reached Singapore. So the local chapter, 350 in Singapore, um, then you know, started to organize some events. And maybe to give a bit of comparison and flavor, in other countries, you know, people have different ways of advocating for climate policies, uh, for climate change. Um, in other countries, people were using maybe you know, arts and performances, or they were talking about uh, organizing protests, and some people were even willing to get arrested for it. Uh, but in Singapore, things were a bit more safer. Uh, 350 Singapore focused on drilling that sustainability mindset and organizing outreach talks, documentary screenings, tree planting, uh, beach cleanup, youth workshops, really to raise climate awareness first, uh, which was, I think, in that period, um, not really there yet. Which this then brings me to the next uh, period, 2016 to 2018. So before 2016, what was happening in 2015 was that some of my friends and I, uh, who were already volunteering with different organizations in Singapore in the environment space, we realized that, hey, you know, we've already learned so much about what's happening in the uh, green sector, blue sector, brown sector, um, and what we're really interested to know about is how countries are addressing these climate issues. So what we then focused on was the UN Climate Change Conference, and that's what we did. We saw that there was an opportunity for us to form a group called Singapore Youth for Climate Action, and this group would then organize capacity building workshops to equip people for that kind of conference. So that started to happen in 2015. 
Um, at the same time, I would also like to acknowledge that local academics in National University of Singapore then accredited NUS as an observer organization to the UN Climate Change Conference as well. So within NUS, they were also sending staff and students to the UN conferences. So what happened was with you know, all these different groups going to the UNFCCC, in 2016 and 2018, we saw that there was a growing interest in people who are now not only interested in just knowing about climate change, but really we wanted to understand the policies, um, international negotiations and agreements, and how we can address this at a more systemic level. And then this brings me to the third phase of what was happening in the climate scene here uh, in Singapore. So to me, the defining moment for us was really last year when a new group popped up, uh, a new group called SG Climate Rally. Um, and they organized uh, the first ever climate gathering at Hong Lim Park. Uh, a show of hands, how many of you were there? No, less than five. Okay, so I think this is the crowd that I really need to talk to, right? So thank you, IPS, for giving me this platform. Um, so what was happening was really, it was this, this gathering uh, at Hong Lim Park was the first of its kind, where people were uh, physically gathering to show their climate concerns, um, and people came in large numbers. Um, almost, I think, straight times when they reported it, it was about 2,000. So really the whole uh, field was filled with people, mostly young people. Um, and then this year, I think just last week, it was announced that uh, this group, SG Climate Rally, together with another group, uh, Speak for Climate, got together and teamed up for a campaign called Green Watch. So essentially what Green Watch is, it's a climate scorecard to assess all party manifestos and rank how different parties are uh, addressing the climate crisis um, and the aim really is to deepen that climate commitment um, during the upcoming general election and I also understand SG Climate Rally um, has talked to parties like I think Singapore Democratic Party and Singapore People's Party for uh, potential collaborations and if anyone's interested I think we have Aidan Mock is he here so Aidan here uh, is from SG Climate Rally. In case anyone is interested to find more, Adrian, Aiden is there. Please approach him uh, and find out more. So I hope you can see from the three time periods I've shared, um, you know, we've moved on from just, you know, ground-up groups organizing outreach events, awareness events, to now trying to understand how policies and negotiations work. And we really want to go into, maybe, you know, go slowly into politics and policies and see how we can uh, change things at a more systemic level uh, at a faster rate. And so how can we do that um, faster rate, right? So um, it really is, in this day and age, is through social media. For me personally, I really like to use Facebook. I find it a, as a meaningful uh, platform to engage people to understand what they think about climate change, um, what are some of their perceptions of uh, policies that's, uh, that's out there, um, and it can really be an interesting space um, and you really need to control yourself and not be easily triggered. So for me, I really like to check out the comments on Green Drink Singapore Facebook page and I also sometimes visit uh, news sites like Today, uh, CNA, Straits Times because I think that kind of 
uh, crowd who comment online are usually not the kind of crowd that I get to meet offline. I think that's a very important learning space for me as well. Um, some people use Telegram and WhatsApp chats for uh, maybe discussions or push alert notifications. So if you're interested, you know, you can find out there are uh, group chats for maybe food waste or dumpster diving. And these can also be really engaging uh, groups for you to then slowly get into the environment slash climate space. Uh, here, I would like to shift your attention to the two examples that I really want to highlight because I think this is, uh, has been gaining uh, traction in Singapore. Uh, first, on Instagram, I think in Singapore we have nearly 1.9 million active users and it's the in thing. Uh, so maybe to give you an example, in 2018, Ministry of Finance uh, engaged social media influencers to promote budget 2018. Uh, Ministry of Environment and Water Resources also engaged social media influencers. So people were getting paid uh, to promote their photo contest. Um, so it's, it's the very like, in thing to do. Uh, the users are out there. Um, and I think for me, what I want to highlight here are these two users um, whom I think really use uh, Instagram, especially the Instagram stories function very meaningfully. So first is uh, Tinkat's SG, which is run by Pamela Lowe. Um, and the second one is The Weird and Wild, which is run by Cheyin, that's her. So for the first one, Tinkat's SG, Pamela's style is really, you know, uh, show, don't tell. So what she does is maybe she attends an event or she reads an article in, in books and she shares with you some of the sustainability angles that she learns. Um, and then she invites you to converse with her and she reshares your comments or stories on her story. So that's Pamela's style. Um, and then for Chuyin, she goes, uh, she does very uh, good quirky illustrations. So she has, um, you know, the big stuff like sustainable living, uh, climate policies at the local and international level and she breaks them down into very quirky illustrations, very simple and easy for people to understand. I think that's something that we really need uh, for people to you know, understand it at a simple level and makes them want to take action uh, easily. Um, and the next one that I wanted to share on is podcasts. I think Singapore, uh, podcasts uh, as a whole, it's a growing trend in the US and the UK and even in Singapore, maybe to give you a scale of how big this can be, uh, in Singapore last year, three Malay radio DJs left their job um, and by February, they started a channel called OK Let's Go. Um, and they talk about you know, everyday things. Um, and the past one year, they've released more than 300 episodes already. And each episode is garnering more than 80,000 listeners. So podcasts can be a very big thing. In the local climate context, uh, we have uh, these two are from Streets Times. Uh, that's Audrey Tan and David Fogarty. So they launched a sort of environmental series podcast called Green Pulse. Um, and then we also have Channel News Asia's 938, now heart of the matter, also covering some environmental news, including the latest UN Climate Change Conference. So a lot of things are going on, and I feel social media is the way to go in terms of amplifying the climate education here in Singapore. And this brings me to my third uh, section on ignorance, criticism, and working together. Now, with the growing climate movement offline and online, um, I think in my ideal state of mind, you know, I would like to think that everyone in Singapore is now aware and they want to do something for the climate. Um, and this, is, um, this has been illustrated on the surveys um, 
that were published uh, recently, right? Surveys done by National Climate Change Secretariat, um, surveys done by National Youth Council, by MediaCorp even, um, and generally they say the same thing. Nine out, of, nine out of 10 people in Singapore are aware of climate change, which sounds good, but at the end of the day, for me, there's really two issues. The first is that being aware does not necessarily mean you would want to do something to change your behavior for the climate. And second, it's a very small subset, uh, sample population. At the end of the day, there are still people who are not aware of these things, or maybe they're, they don't read as much, um, and they maybe don't want to do anything about it. So I think all the more, the efforts that I've shared with you, uh, those by the ground-up groups and those that's happening on social media, it's important to reduce that gap between um, having that sympathy for climate issues and being apathetic about it. And then, you know, there's also the problem of trying to do what we think is best for a country and still being criticised uh, for various things. So this is a screen grab, I think, happened in the last two weeks. Um, I decided to just put this snapshot, but as you can see, this snapshot, there was actually an accompanying uh, lengthy post and it received quite a lot of comments, over 40 comments. Um, and maybe just to, this is just one example to give you a flavour of how harsh things can be, right? Associate Professor Winston Chow, he's currently with SMU, he has contributed a lot to the climate scene here in Singapore. He has even contributed to the UN International Climate Report. So he's a very credible guy and he was giving an interview to Mothership SG. And even then, in that particular uh, Facebook post, he was criticised. He was uh, apparently spreading misleading information and he was told that, you know, you can say whatever you want, Singapore can still do better. So essentially, what I'm trying to show here is that no matter how credible we think we are or how sound we think our policies are, at the end of the day, there will still be critics and critics that we need to dissect and understand that they come from a place of concern and maybe we just need to listen to each other better. And how can we do that? Um, I think for me, um, there's one sort of learning uh, that I really want to share here, is that last year I attended a lecture by Yale University's Benjamin Kishore here in Singapore, and he is the guy to go to if you really want to learn you know, policy learnings um, policies and how they address wicked problems. And wicked problems here, he has a table, he categorizes everything for you. Uh, climate change is in type four, super wicked problem. So the idea is when you want to uh, solve certain issues, you have to identify them correctly and then use certain approaches or certain policies. Um, and then from there, you can handle things better. And he uses, um, or he raises three interesting questions, which I think, you know, is, uh, takeaway for everyone here in that um, the three questions how can we design policies that create sticky immediate uh, sti immediate immediate stickiness um, such that it cannot be reversed uh, easily uh, how can we design policies that can be entrenched and gain support over time and how can we design policies that expand the population that supports those policies so i think these are the kinds of questions we need to ourselves you know as uh, policymakers um, when we are addressing certain things and where when we are trying to convince our critics um, in my last slide here 
um, I would just like to highlight, you know, there can be many different co uh, conversations as to what good politics is. Um, and there can be many different angles uh, in terms of freedom of expression or barriers to entry. For me, in the climate context here in Singapore, good politics means having a healthy ecosystem where all the key stakeholders, all the ground-up groups, agencies like NYC, Muir and so on, can come together and we can talk uh, out things with each other, building that trust and partnership which was earlier mentioned uh, this morning. I think for me, one thing is clear. Regardless of your political affiliation, the climate crisis should be at the top of your agenda and the incumbent should call for national unity when co-creating policies for the climate crisis. Mr. Cham Si Tong, he mentioned this in 1984 after the electoral victory. I think this also is appropriate in our current context. He mentioned, whenever possible, we will cooperate with the PAP and find solutions to the problems. I want to help PAP in its responsibility of nation building. So here, regardless of your political leanings and role in society, be it in the government or NGO, I hope you see that the larger cause here is really to work towards a better Singapore. So put aside your differences and work with each other more. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nora Lestrina. I'd like to... Um, open up the discussion with a question to the entire panel. And I think I'll, I'll pick on the, uh, one of your concluding points about criticism and advocacy. Um, I think when we look at human history, practically every good idea that has brought about positive social change or progress has been criticized uh, at the outset. Um, and this is not something unique to Asia or, or Singapore. Um, 100 years ago, it was perfectly all right to send children to work in factories or shove them down a coal mine because um, of the prevailing belief that children had no rights. Someone has to come up with the idea that children are human beings endowed with rights and then advocate for that, for there to be change. Now, in the process of doing so, often these ideas come from the outliers. They come from people outside the system. So when you talk about change uh, earlier, basically this is political. This is hegemony. This is how we challenge opinions. And I think most of us here, not all of us in this room are millennials, um, most of us here, I think, have, have witnessed change. Uh, we see it all the time. What constitutes humor, for instance, um, in popular media? That too has changed. Um, I'm not sure how many in this room might remember Benny Hill. Uh, up to the 70s and 80s, uh, that kind of humor was, was deemed acceptable. No longer. No longer. We don't, we don't find Benny Hill funny anymore. Why? It's not because the jokes have changed, but it's because society has changed. And for the right reasons. Now, when these changes happen, they often involve people advocating for a different way of looking at things. Uh, understanding that climate issues are common concerns, understanding that migrant workers are fellow human beings, understanding that underprivileged women are people, human beings who deserve a chance. Someone has to advocate for that. But in the process of doing so, I want to go back to the point raised in the earlier panel. Are we not back to this whole debate uh, between diversity and difference in society or a unified society? Do we still live uh, in an age where we can talk about society with a capital S? 
uh, or states with a capital S as if it's something singular. I think Crystal might agree that now the technologies are far more advanced, so we have multiplier effects, we have amplifying effects, we have social media, but 50 years ago, 100 years ago, people would have been using pamphlets or posters. Yeah? So it's not the technology that matters, it's, it's at what point do we recognize that society has moved on and it's not a singular thing anymore. And we need to understand this diversity and complexity and live with complexity. So my question to, to all of you really, um, and anyone can start here, is where do you see yourself, your own work and what you're doing, and, and how does your work you know, contribute to this understanding that society, and in this case Singaporean society, is not this flat, homogenous space, but actually something very, very complex. And is there worth in doing this? Is there, do you think it's important to emphasize this complexity? So can I just present that to all of you here, perhaps? Yeah, sure. Tess. So with regards to complexity, I think in the migrant worker space, it is a complex topic to discuss because many of them would be perceived as non-Singaporeans and therefore may not be acceded the right platforms for this cause. Um, but one of the things that I've learned is also in terms of our interdependence with this group of people. Uh, for example, in terms of our, much of our care in nursing homes or many of the jobs that they fill are completely dependent on a pool of foreign workers within our midst. So this interdependence is also recognised not just in the jobs that they fill, but also historically how we have come to be uh, as a nation that have embraced their diversity and their strengths of different individuals from different backgrounds. And it is also a very pragmatic way of integrating people uh, for the purpose of the better good of all of who come to Singapore to find work. So I think in, in terms of how things have changed now, um, it is quite divisive in terms of when we talk about nationality. Um, and many of us do see them as others. Uh, unfortunately, it's also something that's perpetrated by um, s what some, some of our parents' generation, for example, tell me, you know, don't hang out with them and the stereotypes that these populations have. So that's also something that hopefully can be a social norm that changes over time uh, as we have more uh, opportunities to integrate with social media, uh, being one of the levelers for these uh, changes and these platforms where people can actually voice out about their lives and their human stories. And I think that brings across a solidarity point where everyone can come together and acknowledge their struggles uh, regardless of the jobs or the backgrounds they, they have in society. Hello. Yes. Hi. Uh, thanks. I'd like to um, echo uh, Angel's point about uh, integration, which is very important. Um, and great question by Professor about um, this society and whether you know, this capital S in society is still relevant. Um, I think precisely because um, there's so much fragmentation happening due to the various forces and disruption happening today, all the more we need to make extra effort in making this S in society 
a capital letter S because I think it's important that regardless of our differences in opinions and views, that we are still able to retain a collective identity and a collective purpose and belief in very universal human values, right? Um, I mean, it's arguable whether, you know, collectivism, etc., is the, the, you know, the go-to uh, political ideology. But I think if we look back to ourselves as individuals and us as a community, um, the universal values of caring and supporting one another is really important. Um, Injo works specifically in the area of um, helping locals and the migrant community to integrate. And uh, in very much the same way, um, Daughters of Tomorrow work um, with um, the people who have more in society to understand and um, support and enable those who are what we call the have-nots, right? Um, when we go around to share about our cause with the business community, for example, um, we talk to a lot of companies who are banks and multinationals and I always tell them about how we are one Singapore, but um, many of us uh, live in one world and we don't see the other world, which is the world of poverty for those at the bottom rungs of the socio-economic class. Um, and I think in an increasingly fragmented society, if we don't step up on our efforts to help the people in the different worlds and the different communities get to know about one another's lives and our universality, uh, universality and commonalities in terms of our aspirations, you know, of you know, caring and wanting the best for our children, um, of valuing mutual support, for example, then, you know, we are at risk of um, sinking into something, you know, much darker. So I think the big S in society is still important very much so. Am I on yet? Great. The question is, can society be united but different at the same time? Now, focusing on the word different, if society was all the same, imagine if we were all homogenous, obedient robots, then there is no need to speak of any unity at all because we would just be spoon-fed sheep waiting for information or instructions to be downloaded into us and then we'll go out and produce or go out and action. So can society be united but different? I think you need to be different in order to even talk about the concept of unity. And in a country like Singapore, we have a lot of rhetoric about our vulnerability, our multiculturalism, where we're positioned geopolitically. Diversity is one of our strengths. Having taught in many countries in the world, the students that I meet here in undergraduate classes, I don't have to sit down with them and say, hey guys, maybe vary your media diet and not only watch American TV shows on Netflix. I don't have to go to them to say, watch international films and maybe use your brain to process subtitles to be exposed to other cultures. If you are a human who has grown up in Singapore, these things are not natural. They have been conditioned and they have been taught to you by virtue of your environment, by the education system, by the cultural norms, and by your systemic exposure to all of these things, teaching you to be the sort of citizen that has empathy, sensitivity, and awareness of these things. So we should be celebrating the fact that our young people here, sometimes on social media, when they've got call-out cultures and viral threats on Twitter, seem to be focusing on what a lot of the older generation tend to cast off as super elite first world problems. But the fact that they have the discernment to focus on these things despite being very comfortable is something that I don't feel we should curtail. We can gently guide, provide resources in order for them to do this more effectively, in order for more of these voices to surface, but to completely shut this down or to 
pass this off as just young people chatter online, as I sometimes see being covered in the news is doing our young generations a disservice. Um, Farish also issued this provocation that maybe it's not the technology that matters because pre the internet we had handbills, we had pamphlets. But I would argue that the technology is super important. If you were speaking here to a panel that were not millennials who didn't grow up with phones, we'll be talking to you about the issues very differently. If you've ever owned a smartphone device or if you use social media, you will understand that time on the internet is very weird. When Holly Jean went offline for two weeks, that felt like an eternity. If you're at home and your Wi-Fi is not connecting for one minute, you immediately feel angst and anger because your body has been conditioned to experience time differently on the internet. Similarly, when we're talking about enculturing ourselves to different norms, repeated exposure online through memes, through pop-up ads, through messages that come up through a concerted effort of meme factories or grassroots, that to go from a brand new idea to take root into something very normalized is a very, very short runway compared to doing this in the traditional media. So time is a factor that we must consider when we look at technology. And let's split the hairs even finer. What type of technology? If you're talking about censoring the internet, coming down, for, coming down at political bloggers, censoring contentious YouTube videos, sure. Those are things that are very public in nature. They reach a very broad audience. They are broadcast. You can clamp down on them. But what should we be thinking about now? What about your close groups? What about your Telegram groups and your WhatsApp groups, which is where a lot of people these days get their ideas? A lot of us who were active around the 2011 G elections would remember that the eve before the vote was to take place, there were a lot of WhatsApp messages. Some of these were memes. Some of these were super long chain mill type um, letters that were painting the worst possible case scenario. And all of these were not seen publicly, and they were certainly very difficult for researchers to process and to capture. But we also need to think about the publicness, the privateness, the effectiveness of echo chambers and closed loops in putting out these messages. It is not that we should go down and shut down every private group or that we should infiltrate them and send our IBs there. It is that you need to understand that these groups are very fruitful and important for seeding ideas, for getting people interested, for putting the fence-sitters, the seat-warmers, into deciding where they want to go. So it's important to learn their practices and, if need be, work with these groups as opposed to shutting down communication. If not, it'll just be like any other black market would know. If you take something away, it's going to flourish even greater, just out of sight. It doesn't completely disappear. All right. Um, I'd like to now open it up to members of the audience, and I think you can see uh, the mics there. So while I wait for a few people to come up, I think um, we have one here. And... Uh, there are three over there. So, can I just take over the time? Yeah. All right. So, yes, please. Hello, I'm from Sira Girls Secondary School, and my question is Do you feel that the government is doing enough to hear the views of young people or just the general public on issues that they are passionate about? Like, for example, through memes or social media, or are young people and the general public doing enough to express their views? to the government, and like, what do you think could be done to bridge the gap between the government and the people? Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, can I invite them? Hi, uh, my name is Amol Mittal. I'm from UWC. Uh, my question is, with the increased popularity of citizen journalism in Singapore, 
where do you believe the line should be drawn between what is considered to be citizen journalism and public shaming amongst Singapore citizen, uh, residents? Taking the example of the citizen media page of Stomp, where such websites tend to divide um, our united society. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yes? Yes. Hi, um, my name is Brooke, and I'm also from UWC. And I was wondering um, what your opinions are on this question. To what extent should governments be able to censor online posts that may be deemed discriminatory? Thank you. Thank you very much. And I think the last question for this round. Okay. Yes. Since um, <coughs> Professor Crystal is it brought up surveillance as well as the topic of WhatsApp, I'm wondering um, what, what do you think about since WhatsApp has played such a prominent role, at least in the news, due to its use by a political dis dissident, most prominently perhaps Jamal Khashoggi, to what extent do you think that the backlash against encryption from so-called developed democracies, such as the UK and USA, risks putting genuinely oppressed people who are dissenting against the government through these messaging services in danger, since, of course, Khashoggi is widely believed to have been killed because his WhatsApp messages were hacked? Thank you very much. So, yes, why not? Well, first of all, thank you for promoting me to professor. <laughs> I am not yet there, but I hope to one day be there, even after today. Um, let me respond to the question from the young lady from Cedar Girls first. Is the government doing enough to hear the views of young people? Are young people doing enough to be heard by the government? Um, Number one, there are young people in the government. I think when we think about young people, Lestrina and I were just having this conversation. This morning, a lot of our panelists used the term millennials quite usefully. I feel that these days we use the term millennials as a scapegoat, um, empty label to refer to young people who are noisy and troublesome because we don't understand them. But if you're really talking about millennials as a generational cohort, these are your people in your mid-20s to, uh, mid to mid-30s. If you're talking about younger people who may spend a lot of time on social media, these are your Gen Zs who grew up online. So there are young people in the government who are stakeholders in different facets of society. The government also does cooperate with many other organizations in civil society that have active young people participating. The fact that there are many people in secondary schools and colleges here is a testament of that fact. You have probably asked more questions here than any of the other people who are maybe twice or three times your age. So keep doing that because I really enjoy how you are not yet jaded or have not yet internalized OB markers. So sometimes the questions you ask may feel like they're a bit very uh, blatant or in your face, but it's perhaps because the adults don't feel like we should ask the same questions anymore. So keep being young and keep being angry productively. Are young people doing enough to be hurt by the government? Uh, this question is a bit strange for me because I'm not sure if we know of the same young people in Singapore, but they're extremely vocal. Everything you want to know about them from how they felt about a minister's tie to the latest Netflix show to some food in the newest restaurant is online on the internet. So there are ways where we can tap into these organic networks that are already there, where young people are volunteering information as opposed to orchestrating rather artificial settings of getting the top students from every college to come for a meet the parliament member session or to do surveys. So we need to be thinking more about digital methods and digital ways of gathering data because we are talking about cohorts of very young and digitally savvy people. I'm going to try and group the three questions from the young people at UWC together. Should there be a line drawn between citizen journalism and public shaming? 
Now, Stomp, I have a love-hate relationship with because when it was first launched, it was branded as citizen journalism. And if you're a citizen and this is important to you, then you classify that as journalism. We also had the incentive where if you submitted a story and it was published, you were paid a small sum of money. At first, you could submit it via email or in portals, but now you can do it online um, via WhatsApp. You see these ads um, all over the place where you can WhatsApp any concerns you have. It's normalizing and shortening the runway we have from seeing something, formulating a thought, and then putting out there in the public without thinking about consequences. So the technologies that we have in place, the structures that have allowed these things to flourish, sometimes need to review and take a step back to see, should we always go full tech? As much as I'm an internet ethnographer and my livelihood depends on Singapore continuing to have good internet culture, Sometimes we're not all, we don't always have to think about the best, the quickest, the newest. There is a lot of benefit into rethinking from history, into slowing down and seeing what works for this context. Um, WhatsApp is also a very important point of contention. My colleague, Nathalie Punk, who is one of the organizing members, and I are working on this. I have to answer this from the context in which I work, which is the research I do in Singapore. What we know about WhatsApp in Singapore is that it's really effective for seeding all sorts of messages. In fact, most of the misinformation we're concerned about on WhatsApp is not really political in nature, it's more about personal security and safety. You know, if you eat this specific vegetable, you will get cancer and die. If you watch this television show, you will get another disease and die. And this seems to be a type of routine where the older generations who are presumed to be less digital literate are more susceptible to which is why we've decided to focus on the idea of family groups on WhatsApp. They're perhaps one of the most rare intergenerational situations where young, old, super young, super old are in the same environment. And while the very um, empathetic and helpful elderly like to give us these sorts of information, the young also have a duty of care here to point out how to teach digital literacies and um, care to these people. Um, so I think these are networks we need to focus on. It's not always about danger on the zone on political fault lines. There are immediate pressing concerns that seem to be um, the focus of the everyday Singaporean more so than the elites of society. So uh, I'd just like to add on to uh, Crystal's point about, which I really like about um, young people, please keep uh, being angry productively. <laughs> I think this uh, keyword here is being angry productively um, and uh, at the risk of you know, uh, alienating myself from my peers who are also young people, um, I think the, there are plenty of channels for all parts of society to listen to young people and I think the government has done a pretty good job of offering up these avenues and, and channels and platforms but I think myself being a not so young, young person anymore, I'm kind of like on the borderline of the elder, elder millennial. Um, my, my encouragement or suggestion to um, younger people um, following my cohort is that um, there's a difference between airing your views as an angsty young person um, and airing your views as an informed, mature, balanced young person. And I think, you know, the, the opportunity exists for a lot of us to to get proactively involved in some of the issues and causes that we care about. Because um, maybe I'm coining this term um, or making up this term as we go along, but um, I believe in service-informed views that, you know, you need to kind of roll up your sleeves and 
get down the mud and really get a, a very close sense of working on the issue in order to have a more, much more mature and informed view of, of these issues, right? And this is my personal journey from being a highly angsty person, being angry about how come the government is not doing enough about poverty, um, to now, you know, moderating my views, not because, you know, I changed my mind, but because I understand the complexity so much more after working on the ground. And I think this makes a difference between uh, anyone um, sharing views and, and the person or audience listening to it, whether they want to, or they're able to actually take your views and translate them into implementable action. Best. So I'm addressing the question by my CEDA girl. Can I see where you're sitting? Hello. Um, or, okay, so the question earlier was, do you, you feel the government is doing enough or is listening enough and do you think um, the general public is expressing our concerns um, in a way that people would listen? Um, I, I hope that's a question that you already uh, reflected on before uh, posing it to us. Um, because what I'm going to suggest is, you know, something that perhaps can help you move forward. It's not necessarily, you know, the answer to, to your question. Um, so I think moving forward, uh, two key items here, and uh, this is also uh, applic applicable to everyone in the audience. Um, first thing first, with regards to the climate context here in Singapore, uh, if you're interested to get started to find out what's going on or what are um, the groups doing out there, you know, what kind of events you can attend, uh, please approach IPS or check out the IPS website later in my uh, presentation slides. Um, there's actually another page where I share some resources, um, some publications and links online um, where you can find out more. Um, and secondly, I think specifically uh, to, you know, what can I do? Uh, what can I do more? Um, I'm sure many of us here in this room is aware that uh, SGDI platform exists. Um, I'm not sure how many of us actually utilize it. Um, so to the younger ones out there who are not familiar with it, do check out the Singapore Government Directory website. Learn about the different um, ministries and departments and just you know, check out who you can contact and find out more information from. If there's something you come across online and you want more information, for example, feel free to reach out to these people. So maybe I can share from my personal experience, when National Climate Change Secretariat released um, their uh, survey, I think last month, um, to, to me, I found it quite vague because it was just like a Facebook post and then there were some infographics on it and I actually uh, emailed NCCS asking for more information. Um, and I got some replies via email, we had a chat, you know, it's a very, um, I think if you would See, see the Singapore um, Public Service as someone or a department who is actually friendly. They're your neighbours. Uh, feel free to reach out to them. And if you see it that way, then you, know, you might not feel that um, people are not doing enough, people are not listening to me. That kind of barrier will be reduced immediately. Um, and you just you, know, you, you feel better and it makes you want to do something more for Singapore as well. Thank you very much. Uh, can I just uh, go back to what Kerry um, uh, mentioned earlier, talking about you know, angst and associating it with the young. Whenever I think of angst, I think of old people, actually. Uh, and and um, 
you know, because I spend my time going through chat groups of Brexit supporters and Trump supporters, and, and when I go through the Brexit supporters, it, there's a lot of angst. There's a lot of angst and there's a lot of nostalgia for empire and going back to the glorious past. And a lot of these people actually tend to be old. Um, they're, they're not your millennials. Uh, it's it's um, quite the opposite, in fact. Uh, so I don't think angst is a monopoly of, of, of any particular age group here. But there seems to be a sort of um, underlying current in, in all the presentations. Uh, there's a kind of deep benevolent humanism here. Uh, we are assuming that people want to know, that people want to recognize the other. We are assuming that people want to actually have actual recognition and human contact. Are we right in making that assumption? I mean, let's go back to, to, to things like Facebook, for instance. Facebook is a way that you can you know, talk to people from any part of the world. I, I, I belong to a, a Facebook page uh, where we, we're all fans of spiders, and I can talk to other you know, spider admirers from Brazil or America or whatever. But Facebook's also a very good way to, to not talk to people you don't like. Uh, and this we know for a fact. We know for a fact. We, when we look at the rise of uh, right-wing ethno-nationalist politics uh, in, in Europe, for instance, um, if you don't want to talk to your neighbor because you don't like your neighbor's color, you don't like your neighbor's religion, you don't like your neighbor's race, you don't have to. You can actually live next to this person for decades without ever meeting the person because you've got Facebook that helps you be in, in contact with people who are like-minded. So here's a question we need to ask. Since we, I think we, on this panel, most of you believe that it's actually a good thing to, to embrace diversity, to recognize differences. But what do we do? How do we address the, the, the reality that not everyone wants to embrace differences? Not everyone wants to recognize certain things, certain aspects of identity that they are not comfortable with. How do you deal with that? Um, I'll just leave that here yeah, uh, for you to ponder on and we'll open up for another round. I believe we have, yes? The gentleman at the end, and then uh, uh, my question. Yeah. Sorry, my question is directed to Mr. Tain Chong. So, um, thank you for sharing with us how you try to change the narrative that we carry with us about from migrant workers. My question is to flip it around the other way and say, could you share with us the narratives that foreign migrant workers have of Singapore? What sorts of narratives do they have? And what do they say about us as a society? Thank you. Thank you. Another one? Yes. Um, hi. Uh, my name is Raimi. I teach for a living. I think Ms. Lastrina has really answered a little bit of the question, but I thought it'd be good to hear from the other panels as well. But before I start, I think it would be good for Mr. Chai to know that I've shown students clip a few snipping hair at the back alley, and it melted a lot of our hearts. Uh, for the rest of the panelists, don't worry, I'll share your work tomorrow with the students. <laughs> um, I think bearing in mind the students that I've wonderfully left behind for the day, uh, I thought it would, be, it would be good if I can relay this question to them, or relay the answers to this question to them. Uh, I'm just wondering what would be the best advice you can give to youths uh, who are very passionate and want to take the first steps uh, to be advocates and champions of social causes that they are passionate for. Thank you. Yes. Yep. Thank you, Chairman. 
Uh, I'm not responding to your call about the angst of the old. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, looking at the panel, I'm really very, very impressed, very inspired. I don't think I, they can call me grandpa. I have four kids who are all older than them, but I have five grandkids. But I could relate to their ideals, the values which they are sharing with us. Uh, I'm Zainal Abidin, not related to Crystal. <laughs> but uh, I'm amazed at the eloquence and the you know, articulateness of the panel. My question is, in talking about values, I was placing myself 50 years back, 40 years back, when I was their age. I share the same concerns, but I never talk in terms of the intergenerational problem. I just did my what I need to do in terms of social work or social services, helping bridge the gaps between the society in society. So my question is, what is your response to people like me, like us, the older generation? There's little chance of them actually riding on the internet or the social media. Do you just ignore us? Or how do you respond to people like us and to imbibe your values? Thank you. And finally, Miss, sorry. Okay, um, so I'm Gabby from UWC. Um, so my question is about technology, because obviously we've seen in recent years that it's a worldwide phenomenon that more people are um, having access to technology, and we've seen how it's impacted jobs, like um, PMDs are making it easier for grab drivers to work, and, uh, but we don't really see people talking about the negatives of technology, like how are we going to um, create and compensate for the jobs that are being lost to automation, and how does Singapore, or how do you propose that Singapore is going to move forward um, with this. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, can I? Thanks, Tess. Um, so thank you for uh, the gentleman over there with that question on how foreign workers view Singaporeans. Uh, so that's an interesting question because for many of the foreign workers, uh, what they shared is mostly what we've heard. Like Singapore is very good, there are good transportation, good safety. And a lot of it, uh, speaking in comparison with the countries back home, the lives that they've left uh, to come here. However, I think the next step as you probe further is often like what your future plans would be. Many of them have the impression that uh, being a low-wage foreign worker, it is also completely impossible for them to uh, imagine settling down here. So one of the perspectives I've heard is, you know, my dream is to become Singaporean. Unfortunately, the truth is, uh, unless you have enough money or you have enough certification or enough uh, credibility, if not, it will be hard uh, to even dream about that. Uh, the other thing that migrant workers have shared with me uh, is also how much of what I've taken for granted personally. Uh, many of them, they share about the struggles that they have made to come here. Uh, and it does remind me of stories and similar stories that we've read about in history or even hearing from my grandfather himself who came to Singapore from China. So that, I think, was a point of reflection where many of them and what they're going through right now, uh, coming to a foreign land to work, uh, if they ever get injured or they meet a salary uh, problem or they have a bad boss, uh, who do they really turn to? And if I was thinking about it from my grandfather's point of view, I would hope that the local community would be the one that rallies around to help them uh, in times of need. And I think that perspective really got me to think about uh, foreign workers in Singapore and not just uh, thinking of them as people outside of us, but uh, people who really we have a lot to learn from as well. 
Um, on the second point, on also the gentleman in front, thank you for showing your video to your students. Um, I hope they didn't learn how to cut hair. That's not a super useful skill. Uh, I only save a lot of money cutting my own. But the advice that I would give to passionate youth is really um, to find out and be curious. Uh, the fire that uh, Crystal mentioned most young people have and eventually lose when they join the workforce or they become jaded is really true. And many students that we've met who are passionate about the projects that they are given to do, uh, the, they, they sometimes approach it from a frame of what's the process that I've been taught? What's the design thinking methodology? What's the kind of points that I hope to get and the metrics that I should use to measure that? And unfortunately, that stifles a lot of what is possible for many of these passionate students. And I think one point of encouragement also for fellow educators um, is to sometimes having an open frame of allowing them to immerse themselves, uh, not just with migrant workers, but also with, for us with elderly. Uh, for example, in nursing homes, a group of SIDA students who came by, uh, just spent three hours with them uh, over a month, uh, every week, just mingling around, chilling out with the elderly. And the ideas that they thought about were completely out of the box. Um, and a lot of these designs came from a perspective of the conversations that they had and a lot of the needs that they identified were shared personally by the members in the nursing home itself. And I thought that was a very beautiful process that the teacher was open enough to let them take through. Uh, and that was really encouraging uh, for passionate youth to continue that fire uh, through others, uh, through the, the education and mentorship of teachers and external partners as well. Thank you very much. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are down to the last three minutes, so I'd like to invite Noel, Kerry, and then Crystal to address uh, the questions. One minute each, if it's possible. Sorry. Um, I think for me, maybe out of the four questions, the most relevant one is the one from Mr. Zainul Abidin um, on how, or I think at least for myself, how I'm communicating certain um, values or actions to people of the older generation. If I could share one example that's happening at home, my father remarried about two years ago. And I was trying to find ways on how I can talk to my stepmom, she's Indonesian, on, you know, uh, recycling. Um, and I didn't really want to go into details and tell her, you know, like, oh, Singapore has a waste management problem and so on. Um, but really, I was just showing her what was happening, um, that at the Void Deck, we have a blue bin. Someone comes in and collect all these recyclable materials. Um, at home, I'm going to put this plastic here, you know. Um, if you can, whenever we have cans or plastic bottles, can you put it in the plastic? I think that kind of um, direct, simple conversations with um, people of the older generation um, is something that I find... Um, has been working for me in terms of communica communicating my point across. Um, if I may just add another layer to that, um, how I'm also um, engaging people of the younger generation. So I have a five and a half year old niece, um, and she doesn't understand all this like social media stuff, right? So what we do, um, we go out quite uh, often, and I bring her, you know, from uh, Hot Park all the way to Harbourfront, and it's a very long walk. She's very tired, but she's exposed to the outdoors, and we get to talk about a lot of things about nature. And I think that's also another way for me, at least, to engage people of the younger generation and tell them more about environmental protection and conservation. It's true, bringing them outdoors. Okay, I'm going to probably take more than one minute, but um, just to address, uh, is it Mr. Zainos? Point about. I mean, the way I heard your question is, um, what is the place for the seniors in, in uh, the young people's world? And I think it takes recognition from both young people and the 
silver generation, that uh, inevitably we are heading into an aging society and the, young, the older people are here to stay for a long time and they're going to be a large part of the community. Um, I think there is a lot that we can learn from each other. Um, for example, the other day I had uh, this uh, woman, this lady in her 60s who tried to call me um, and being a young person, Right now in our culture, it's almost rude to call without texting first, so I wasn't expecting her call. And I was very hesitant to pick up a call because I wasn't prepared to have a long conversation. But I thought, you know what, um, she's calling me, maybe you know, I have a bit of time, I can try picking it up. And I was pleasantly surprised, and in a short five minutes of conversation, um, I found out so much uh, more about what she's involved in, what she's doing that day. And I think the value that older people can bring to a very uh, tech-entrenched generation is um, the ability to maintain very warm interpersonal relationships that are not tech-barriered, right? And I think it takes recognition for young people to, to see value in that. Um, okay, then I'm going to move on to um, Professor Farish's question about whether it's a good strategy to assume to take a benevolent approach and assume that everybody wants to you know, be nice and, and to love each other and everybody wants to recognize differences. Right? And I think being in the civic society where we're running charities, we're doing social movements, we kind of have the luxury of um, giving people the benefit of the doubt. And I have to say that with our organization's experience, that has translated to amazing outcomes, as you can see from the success stories we shared. So I'm hoping that there is room for this kind of um, stories to inspire some kind of uh, mentality change to shift from a fear-based mentality of policy-making uh, to more a love-based or investment, <laughs> pragmatically speaking, investment-based um, way of uh, looking at public policy. Often we come across um, policymakers saying, you know, they don't want to do this or that because they worry about certain schemes or certain provisions being abused. Um, and that's perfectly understandable given that you're under public scrutiny and you're being responsible and accountable to the public. So I think this, this kind of question requires um, us to think about both as citizens and as policymakers, is this the kind of uh, renegotiation of the social contract we may want to have where we delegate, you know, the pragmatism to the government and should it make mistakes, we, you know, the MRP breakdowns and, and, and we, we get into a fuss about it, right? Or can we also um, give some confidence and leeway for perhaps policymakers to also adopt some love-based or, or benevolent, um, uh, benevolence-based kind of policymaking? Um, finally, Christopher. Um, Mr. Zino Evident, my father is also a Mr. Zino Evident, but I can confirm that you are not my dad. But still, I will respond to your question first out of this weird halo effect of respect for you now. Um, the, the common response is always to find common ground, right, between the young and the old. And this also has become an empty signifier, what is a common ground. As an anthropologist, I find that the best way to understand people is to not bring them for a specific cause, but to let them spend time together. You cannot just throw people into a room and say, okay, what in our lives intersects in a Venn diagram? Let's extremely bond on this. And then now let's extremely persuade each other about this specific issue. I think if you want to groom empathy and understanding, you naturally have to spend time with people, like the way Injo, Lestrina, and Carrie have been doing with the groups that they're working with. You cannot just parachute yourself into a group and say you're going to be an advocate. Which responds to the question from the very thoughtful teacher at the back. If I were to give advice to young people, it would be to build allies. Not just allies 
horizontally in your generation across different advocacy and causes, but vertical allies. These days, whenever there is a social movement in Singapore, when it first starts, we're all energized, we're so excited, it's going viral, woohoo, great. Many, many days of sustenance in this, and then we lose stamina, and that's it. So in order for a lot of these movements to take root deeply and to have impact, we want to reflect on history. What have people before us done? Even if we're talking about social media or a new phenomenon, nothing is really new in this world. It's reinvented, reshaped, reguised for our specific time and context. So it's important to see what our forefathers have done, whether or not we agree or disagree with them. In order to build stamina, um, to add on to our action, you want to have generational allies back to the people who have gone before us. And I don't say this as lip service just to honour all the people, 80% of you are probably older than us here in this panel, but the fact that we sometimes tend to do the same things over and over without consolidating. We put them on different avenues, we do not remember, we do not sit to think and review what has come before us. And as a young person, as much as with a lot of energies, I think that will be one of the earliest steps for us to consider. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure you'll agree with me that this has been a very lively, exciting and very, very important panel. Uh, all that's left for me now is to invite you to join me in thanking our speakers, Chai Ying Shao, Crystal Abidin, Kerry Tan, No, Ashley Mohammed. Thank you very much.